0: This week on Death of the Reader, it's all about romance, as we see the crime come to a head. We'll speak to Shuming Tao about classical romance and see if these Frenchmen were quite as deluded as they seem. All that and more, now on Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and herds and it's time to farewell the Widow LaRouge, as we have reached, in fact, the end of her case. Over the past three weeks, we've been speaking about all of the dastardly schemes and conniving servants that led to her demise and the framing of the Viscount, Albert de Commerin. but herds. Flex. It was all just a big coincidence.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, the title is a lie. The La Rouge is not a widow. Um, none of the clues matter for anything. Um, <laughs> this is the fun part about this novel and actually why I enjoyed reading it so much, especially last week getting to chat to you and being like, why do you think that the broken foil has been missing and that they found the kid gloves and there's the money boots and the... It, it doesn't matter. The answer doesn't matter. It just happened to all be occurring at the same time. Albert was like, yo, I'm going to go and see my sweetheart. And I was like, I'm going to kill a widow who isn't actually a widow. And then he left his stuff on the train.
0: I know. <laughs> like, the thing is, is... On the one hand, I feel like I should be furious about the fact that none of the clues mattered at all. Are you furious, though? Because, this is the question. because like, there wasn't really any foreshadowing, I thought, as to the fact that everything was just, it just happened, right? No, there wasn't. However, <laughs> everything
1: Tabari said was a coincidence. Yeah. I mean, he literally would talk about, this is the son who has been switched with the other son, but they hadn't actually. That's what we find out later, of course. And he's just living right near now. No, like the whole book is a big bag of coincidences it is. right from the beginning. And,
0: and yeah, and I, I I, was mad about it. I was like genuinely frustrated <laughs> with like, I put in all of this goddamn effort. And you're telling me he just left it on the train?
1: He just left ev- all of the evidence on the train and then they found it. And uh, like he, he had a little name tag saying, I am the murderer. And he left it on the train. But then it turned out that Albert also had a name tag that said, I am the murderer. But it was like misspelled a little bit, and so they were like, "Yo, Mara, we we got you, nailed it, going to jail, getting hanged." But yeah, after after that reread,
0: I was like, "Oh, it just it was all coincidences," and he was just oh. open about that the whole time. Also, the power of love, Ugh,
1: just <laughs> which I love. No, look, no. yes, it is. It is the power of love. I love this novel so much. I had the biggest, dumbest good on my face. I was like, is this all just going to not matter? And it's going to be that the, the pure and innocent woman character who can't do it on her own, but loves a man so much. She's going to come in and save him. It was great. I loved it. I'm not sure whether the like <laughs> way that this
0: story presents love <laughs> is self-aware. <It's> <laughs> because everyone is just absolutely delusional. Mm. You know, we have this entire scene where every time the, you know, the love interest is introduced with, with Dabaron, with Noel, with Albert, just all of, all of their romances mm. are all horrible to them. Yeah.
1: They're, well, blindly devoting themselves. Yeah, I mean that's the idea of like romance, right? This is this is a part where you know, like this was written in the the nineteenth century. The the idea of romance that you devote yourself one hundred percent to someone like Albert lies about having an al- not having an alibi because he doesn't want to hurt the you know to hurt the person he loved or betray her trust, which. It, like, is what allows him to escape in the end, because she comes to to the magistrate of her own accord and says, oh, I am here in my white dress and my ghostly pale figure. Let me tell you all of the truths. Oh, you see, magistrate. And that's that's the scene. I hope you enjoyed that voice, by the way. Oh, my Um, goodness. It was...
0: (laughs) Well, I think if it was like one or two of the characters that had this style of relationship, and then there was Mm. another example of like a better relationship, so we could kind of laugh at the difference between them, Mm. then I'd feel it was more tongue in cheek. Yeah, because it's all of them. It it. feels like is this is it taking itself seriously, which is a bit weird.
1: Well, especially um, we have the reveal from from Juliet, which is something it's it's kind of subtly subtly uh, subtly is in air quotes, but um, (laughs) there is very subtlety. You know, is saying oh how you how you bore me. Noel, you just you just give me money and you never let me see your friends. And then in the end, when he comes to her and is like, "Yo, we gotta run! I am wanted by the police. I am being hunted like an animal." Which is great, by the way. That chapter where it describes Noel and his like. He's a mindset as he's like stumbling through the streets and people are looking at him. He's getting paranoid. There's a fantastic chapter. Yeah. It is completely different from everything else in the book. It feels like you're in the mind of a, of a killer who's been, who knows their court, you know? And mm. I love that. It's so good. Um, Really ties into what I've been saying about how this novel Its biggest strength is not the mystery. It's like how, um, we, we feel like these are, like, real people to an extent, at least. There is that yeah. of cheat nature to it. But, yeah, uh, Juliet says, but I've loved you this whole time. And she's, she goes, let's run away together. But they spend about 10 minutes trying to pick up all the jewelry. Um, and that's when the police rock up. <laughs> so, really, he doomed himself through love, mm. which is great. Well, I think...
0: Uh, the thing that you've reminded me of there is oh, yeah. once again, Knox's first rule that yes. the culprit must be mentioned in the early part of the story, but we don't often address the following part of that rule, yeah. which is button. They must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to follow. Yeah. Right. Mm. Now, one thing I noticed early in the story is that when we go to meet Juliet for the first time, we explicitly never get Noel's thoughts yeah. in that scene, um, mm-hmm. which I was one of the reasons i was suspicious of him because i was like okay we're obviously keeping a more third person perspective than we yes, were for yes. tabaret or anyone else but i really liked that once the story was confident and open with the fact that it's null then it's Jumped like he's yeah. in his head
1: it's beautiful it it speaks to the the kind of quaintness of the novel you can tell that it's not as refined it's it doesn't you know follow as many conventions as a, as a modern you know crime novel but It has an undeniable sense of fun as we follow these characters.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think the other thing with all of those characters that we kind of had thrown to but never actually showed up is that maybe they were originally meant to show up, but because it was a serialized story and- you know, this was the kind of era where it would have been much easier for a Parisian to write a letter to Gaborio and say like, oh, I love this part of your novel. Mm. You know, maybe he got a bunch of letters that were like, Noel's an excellent character. And he's like, all right, he's the bad guy. Yeah, maybe. Um, or, you know, maybe a bunch of his letters didn't actually address the guy with the earring at all. So he kind of put him to yeah. the wayside because it's a serialized release There can be a lot more dynamic push and pull from the audience. I think uh, of how that story develops over time and a lot more of a, a dynamic way that the author can explore where their head's at. As we were talking with Sean Britton in the final part of The Floating Admiral, one of the things that's difficult between sequels and all sorts of things is that you as an author have changed and how does that change the way you write?
1: Well, at least for a lot of exciting moments. As I say, the, the chase scene of, of, you know, catching the criminal is often kind of superfluous and kind of tapped on the end and like in a movie especially, it, it's, you know, it's all about the spectacle. Let's see how many snipers Sherlock can dodge as he, as he heads after Moriarty. Whatever, he's going to catch him. Reason? Who? I don't who remember. I don't remember that part of the book. I'm pretty sure that was in the second Robert Downey Jr. movie. I there see. was a scene, there was a scene like that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I, I know that one. <laughs> the books less so, but um, one of my favorite scenes, which was like pretty darn superfluous, was when Tabaret is chasing after Juliet in in the the cab or whatever, and he's like, follow that blue bonnet. And the driver in his head is like, ah, oh, I see he's, he's found out his woman is with another man. <laughs> and then he chases her for 20 francs. And then he's, he's like, oh, she's getting away. And he, and then the, he's mine. The cab driver is saying, oh, well I'm, I'm on the side of the woman. Usually in these cases, but for 40 francs, I'll chase it down for you. And it's this very silly, like, I don't even remember. I don't think he got a name, the cab driver, but yeah. he was one of the funniest characters, just with only three lines all in his head. It was beautiful. Um, but as you say, there are some weaknesses. And I think that the the biggest weakness that I kind of found was in the ending mm. where they have the like, oh, the murderers killed themselves, but they're just how they have just enough strength to write a confession, so everything can be put to right. And the, the, the couple, the, like, romantic interests can get together and that's that's it. And it just kind of trails off with, like, Tabaret. I think there's a nice little nod to Tabaret saying that he then, you know, was more interested in cases where um, guilt was not 100% prescribed, which mm. is which is nice. But it definitely feels more like – it's like we got to the second last chapter of the book. We had our climax and then we jumped straight to, like, the post credit scene. Like, there should be a, a scene – between those two things, mm. and this is how we wrap up all the- I don't know. I, I feel like it just wrapped up, like, very quickly and strangely. I don't know if you felt the same or not. I- I I
0: do agree with that. I think that we've been complimenting the book over the previous two weeks about how consistent it was in tone. As we should. And I think that was true right up until that part where you mentioned where suddenly it's like, hold on, what's just happened? Where have we jumped? Yeah. But, and I'll speak about this a bit in the third part. I don't think that it's entirely unjustified. You know, it, it can feel a little bit weird, but it's one of those things where in the detective story realistically what happens is that you know the culprit gets caught life goes on yeah and how do you wrap that up tidily there's not as much of an event after the culprit's been caught but right now herds it's time to jump over to shuming Teo professor from macquarie university and an expert on romantics who can hopefully set us straight about what's going on with all these damn love stories this is death of the reader
1: You're listening to Death of the Reader on Tua CR. This is Flex and Herds, with more guest talent here to sweep you off your feet and teach you about your months. We have Associate Professor Xu Ming Tio, author of Desert Passions, Orientalism and Romance Novels, Behind the Moon and Love and Vertigo, the latter of which earned the Vogel Award in 1999. Xu Ming, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. That's good, that's good. We're here to discuss the le case, which, as I enjoy, has a strong romantic focus. The killer has a strong drive to pursue the woman he loves by any means. Xu Ming, how does the romantic genre blend itself with the genre of detective fiction?
2: There are a lot of crossovers. We probably... Traced the modern detective mm. um, novel with romantic elements back to the 1920s and 1930s with Georgia mm. Hires novels. Right, so Georgia Hires wrote Regency romances, but she also wrote um, detective fiction during de- the golden age of detective fiction. So she was among, I guess, um, the re- the writers that your uh, your listeners are probably familiar with: Agatha Christie, Marjorie mm-hmm. Ollingham, Patricia Wentworth, Niall Marsh, Dorothy Sayers. So she was among those, but um, her detective fiction tended to have romantic subplots as well Mm. this the 19th century was the great age of romance it's when um, the romantic novel first begins uh, right across Europe but um, I think romance back then did not mean the happy ever after that it does today so um, we I guess we call it love stories nowadays but um, the 19th century was a great believer in love stories Uh, So I think this whole notion that you've got to pair up, um, you know, your couple in order to have some kind of resolution, Mm. um, that's probably very 19th century.
0: I think the other thing that was interesting, particularly about the LaRouge case, as you were talking about how it's, you know, love was more of a tragedy and less passion-based back in the 19th century, a lot of the relationships and romances we have going on in the LaRouge case end up being fruitless or seemingly critiquing the way people treat each other. For example, uh, one of the main characters in the novel, Noelle, his romance is very much one-sided where he's just giving this woman everything that he has and getting nothing in return. How is that reflected in the romantic genre at the time and how much is that reflected in other works?
2: Okay. Um, That's coming straight out of Romanticism, like Goethe's Werther, the um, the sorrows of the young young Werther. Um, The 19th century was an age where people really believed in unrequited love. Right. And this is the purest form of love, and the purest um, ending to a love um, story is a tragedy because that makes your emotions that much sharper than if they were all to end happily ever after. So the fact that um, you have unrequited love, I think, um, is quite common in 19th century um, love stories. And today, of course, it's completely different. Uh, you get over the person that you were in love with. The 19th century wouldn't have liked that because love is, is not supposed to commoditize the, um, the beloved. Right, that they become interchangeable with the next one that comes along. You know, so you're sort of looking at, well, I've fallen in love with this person. If they don't return my feelings, um, that's really sad, and I grieve a bit. But then I move on to the next one because there is the next one. Um, So that's how we think of uh, of it today, and it's probably healthier. But back then, um, uh, the person that you fell in love with was supposed to be the ideal. It was the one and only. And um, if they didn't um, return your love, then you just live this blighted life. But if you fell in love with someone else and moved on, then um, they would have questioned, was that really love to begin with?
0: Yeah, it sounds to me almost like that is a result of the commonality of arranged marriages back in those days. Do you think that that is true? And how does that manifest itself?
2: By the 19th century, uh, arranged marriages were not that common, so uh, people were starting to marry for love, particularly among the middle classes, which is, of course, the readership for your novel. People had a lot more choice, but I think one of the reasons why um, we see love and courtship featuring so heavily in the 19th century novel, um, in, in all kinds of genres, is because people were trying to work out, well, what does it mean to fall in love, to be in love, and to marry for love? Um marriage for love you know the what they call the love match places a lot of responsibility on individuals if, if your parents arrange your marriage, um, if you are not happy, well, that's on them. It's not your fault. But if you're responsible for falling in love and for making a choice of a partner based on your feelings of love, then you probably want to know um, what does being in love actually mean. And so there is a lot of literature, a lot of um, writing about what does it mean to be in love in the 19th century, not just in fiction, but also in advice manuals um, in you know literary period periodicals as well, even in newspapers. Um, we still have talk about love, but it's more about managing. It's, it's within the self-help genre. But in the 19th century, it was it really was exploratory because the stakes were so high. Yeah, especially for women.
0: Mm. We've spoken a fair bit with this book about how it critiques the aristocracy and the upper class of the mm-hmm. time, and I think that that change where the middle class was starting to marry more for love, whereas the upper class was maybe lagging a bit behind there, and the arranged marriage of the more noble people in the book definitely reflects that.
1: Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about the history of... Um obviously you've written quite a few few texts on romance why are you so interested in the topic of romance what sparked that uh, creative
2: oh well okay so my first novel love and vertigo is really about um it's it's really the anti-romance of the family so it's about mm. um the falling apart of the family but one of the reasons why um i guess the family falls apart is how the family got together in the first place so um so the uh the narrator's mother um was of that first generation from singapore society who got educated and and then, who married for love or what she thought was love. But um, it's, even, it's clear in that novel that what she imagines to be love is what she has learned um, from reading love poetry, British love poetry, particularly, and the movies as well. So it's this whole mm. discourse of love, right? So I think I'm really interested in um, how love is represented, how it's changed over time, because it's something that people think it's natural. Um, everybody thinks that they know something about love. Mm. Right, that they're an expert of um, uh, in matters of love um, because of their own experiences. And yet when we look at the history of love um, and what it means and the ideas that are attached to it, this changes over time. Right, So if the ideas change, the emotions change as well. So for example... Um, today we are quite reluctant to think about a lot of pain as being a part, a, you know, a normal part of love. In the 19th century, you couldn't have love without having pain because the, the suffering process was supposed to, you know, accentuate the experience of love, right? So that's one thing that is really quite different. Yeah. Um, the way people express love also diff, um, differs significantly. So there's an um, one of my favourite um, a- a- anecdotes is an early modern um, uh, scholar who, uh, who looks at Welsh um, traditions of love. And he Says that well, you know, in this village in Wales, and, um, in the uh, in the Middle Ages, how young men would express their love or attraction for a young woman, it would be to pee on her dress, right. Uh, it's a practice that it's called rethu r h y t h y t h u. Now today we think that you know that it was assault that it expresses <laughs> contempt, right? It's completely not very classy, op- no. It's completely the opposite. Yeah. You know, but it just shows that love has a cultural history and how it's expressed is actually very much determined by culture. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I'm really interested, I guess, in, this oh. in the topic.
1: That's an excellent answer. Yeah. Makes me wonder what sort of strange new things we'll be doing in the near future to express our love to each other. Hopefully, not taking lessons from the Welsh.
2: No, not mm. in that regard, anyway. Maybe from from your novel.
1: Maybe, right? maybe mm-hmm. we'll throw all our money at someone and then get shot at the end. Anyway,
2: <laughs>
1: that won't be pleasant. Yeah, I've heard you describe crime and romance fiction today as a flourishing subgenre. What makes you say that? Could you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Okay, so as I said, um, crime and romance as genres uh, or subgenres start to intermingle um, yes. from the 1930s onwards in the novels of George at Hire. Um, and they, you know, there's a sort of lag in the 20th century, the mid 20th century, when it's really about the Gothic and the romance. But when the romance genre takes off, in, um, especially in the 1980s, so this is when the genre becomes Americanized, there's a whole lot of American writers, they're bestsellers, um, and they're writing romance. And then the romance ceases to be sufficiently interesting for what they want to do. And so they start, um, including elements of crime in, because, um, I said before that in the mid-20th century, how people um, depict passion, romance, love, is through the battle of the sexes. But how do you get, you know, um, if, if you don't want your hero and heroine to be fighting all the time, how do you get them to work together? And one of the ways that romance writers did, um, uh, you know, was to, was to combine romance with crime because then you've got um, the detective or whoever it is, you know, the good guy working with the heroine to solve some kind of crime.
1: It's so the mystery, not just of the case, but also of each other's hearts. <laughs> (laughs) One might say, That's very
2: romantic. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Anyway, well, that's a lot of recommendations
0: in there for things you can check out. And thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: You're very welcome. And thanks for having me.
0: This has been Death of the Reader. We are talking The LaRouge Case. and We'll be back in just a second. You're on 2 ser. This is Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds, bringing you a murder mystery world tour, and this week is the final episode
1: for the Larouche case and the end for Noel, the lovely good boy who nobody hated and that was definitely innocent of all crimes. Right, right, Flex. Absolutely. It was that awful old woman who died halfway through the novel. Uh, so
0: <laughs> this is the part of this. This is the part of the show where we talk about what we thought of the puzzle, how fair it was.
1: Uh, how absolutely goddamn right I was-ish. Whatever. <laughs> it's just going to happen every second week, so don't just get used to it, guys. Just buckle in and get ready for the ride of him. Yeah. Just tell me how, how smart he is. I'll just put on my smug glasses smarty and we'll pants. carry on.
0: Yeah, it's awful. I don't think I can take as much credit for being right about this novel as we could have for the previous novels we've covered because, nice. as we said it earlier in the episode, it's just an absolute pile of coincidences and practically tells you what's going on.
1: It's great. I love it. This is my favorite murder mystery where like the mystery drives, it drives the plot. It brings us to this moral of like love, love conquers all, but also can bring you to your downfall. That's, that's a cool thing to explore, but the mystery isn't like the entire point of the novel, which I know is heresy to say on a murder mystery show, but like, that's just, that's just how I be. I love murder mystery. I love puzzling stuff out, but if that is the entire point, I don't feel like. I don't know. I, I, want, I want that emotional connection. I want that, like, moral lesson at the end.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things with detective fiction, of course, is that there are only so many ways you can lock a door mm. and put a corpse behind it. And yeah, right. I think that having a variety in the genre is not a bad thing, even if it does lead to some cheap feeling puzzles like this. But as you say, the puzzle is not the core of the story in the same way it is in others. Mm -hmm. That said, one of the things that I love most about the puzzles in Murder Mysteries is going back over them and seeing like, this is where this was foreshadowed. This is where this was foreshadowed. Your second read is like a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. And despite how like tacky the puzzle was in this novel, I think this has been one of the best rereads of a murder mystery I've had. Yeah. Because you get to go back and see all of the other stuff that's going on in a new light. And because it's still a mystery, you still have that uncovering experience that you would with a conventional whodunity golden age type story.
1: For me, as the veteran, going back and rereading it, my favorite part was reading Noel's lines, particularly when he's interacting with with the counts. Mm. When he's talking to anyone, he is, like, deadpanning it. Um (laughs) You know, yeah, like, it's fantastic. he's a psychopath mm. watching this battle between the two that I'm going to keep calling them the two good boys of the story, Albert and Noel and seeing how Albert is completely clean he does everything chivalrously and romantically and then Noel who's like oh don't worry i'll definitely get i'll get Albert out of prison i'm sure that i'll mm-hmm. do that i don't think he ever says i will catch the culprit he just says i will get albert out yeah. which is one of those fun things of we don't really know whether he's like he's obviously not you know he's not going to you know out himself but like maybe he did want to get albert out of that situation. Maybe he really did want to say, oh well it was it's somebody else. It's person X. You know, it wasn't me, it mm. wasn't Albert. But like looking through his dialogue and seeing all the times that he lies to people and see that undercurrent of his his debt to Claire jo and and Juliet and all that stuff. It was it's fantastic to read over. And yeah, I hope I hope you enjoyed that as well. Yeah, I
0: have about like four annotations for every single page of the book. Mm. And every single one of them that is a null piece of dialogue has uh avoids <laughs> thing next to it because every line he says as you say is dodging an issue and Mm -hmm. it's one of those things i I picked up on it on the way but i didn't realize how egregious it was until a reread and i really love going back over and being like oh i didn't mention that and this one and this one yep It was a fantastic experience. It's really great. I think one of the other things that I really loved about Noel earlier in the story is that when we first meet Juliet, I realized on a reread, Mm. there isn't even really a clarification on when that scene is happening. No, not really. No. You know, obviously it says eight days until I've resolved this, but it never says what that resolution is. And there are multiple events in the novel that it could be leading up towards. True.
1: It does kind of reveal it a bit later in the book. Claire Joe, he has a conversation with Claire Joe where he says that, you know, oh, I will pay back your debts. I just need you to give me an extra week and I'll have all the money I could ever want.
0: I I really enjoyed going back over and seeing this was positioned here in the story. And then all of the reasoning I'd done about what if this was a time jump to after the crime or before the crime or here, Mm. there, elsewhere, it really wrapped it up nicely on a reread. And I think that's... Perhaps the prime example of a scene that I enjoyed on a reread. Sure, yeah. But here we are, herds, to rate the fairness of this story, <gasps> and I have to say, oh no, I have never witnessed a greater essay <sighs> upon Rule Six of the Knox Decalogue. Oh my goodness, which rule is Rule Six? No accident must ever help the detective. <laughs> yeah. Nor must he ever have an
1: unaccountable intuition. Yeah, that's just which th- proves to be right. That's just this this novel in a nutshell. It's just Rule Six. <laughs> i'm I am like convinced that Knox wrote that rule after reading this novel i I genuinely would not be surprised
0: it it's great. The thing is is like if you were to read this rule as no accident must ever help the detective, right Cool. Yeah. that's a good rule. mm-hmm. But then when you add on the nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition, that that, that's a little more suspicious, that's a little more this novel. Yeah, sure. Then which proves to be right, that's this novel. Yeah. Hands down.
1: I mean, it's nothing but coincidences and him saying, What if this is a plot thing and then it just is a plot thing, and that's that's the novel.
0: Mm. Now, while we're on the topic of Nox Rules, I have one last one that I have to bring up, Herds. Go for it. Not more than one secret room or passage is allowable.
1: Yeah, there was only one. It was just I, the one in Knoll's house. I was loved.
0: Only- I loved the way they used <laughs> Null's one because, like, it was like chapter five, and they're just like, "Here it is." Yeah, and then it was the, the onus was upon the story to use it again in an entertaining way. <gasps> yeah, and the way it used it. Oh. The
1: valet, like, complains.
0: It's fantastic. It was it was just so good because earlier in the story, when it was first introduced, it was like, so that no one would know that he's leaving the building. And then later on, the valet is just like, ah, no, he's using the door
1: again. Yeah, yeah he complains about it. He's like, oh, why is Noah using the secret passage? I thought that he would rather come through the front door. I suppose he's trying to save me some trouble with my paw back.
0: <laughs> it's so good. It's excellent.
1: So, ultimately,
0: I guess... I have to. Do I call this book fair or not, Herds? I
1: don't know. Like, do you call this book fair? I suppose so. It, like, it gives us all the clues. Um, it's just that all those clues are coincidence. I don't know. I mean, I think the
0: main thing to me about whether I'm deciding whether or not this story is fair is that I need to know what the blurb on the back of the book said in the publication of this because I've been reading an ebook which didn't have it because it was a public domain copy yeah right well would have had a blurb it was serialized obviously that's not like that doesn't change what the book is Mm. but I think that I came in with too different of an expectation to this story than it wanted me to come in
1: yeah I think that I mean that's the that's the kind of trick with any like any novel in general really but especially with with like mystery novels if you you know, you come in expecting there to be, you know, a very light mystery and it turns out to be incredibly complicated. You're like, well, this isn't the novel I signed up for. Um, if someone tells you, you know, this is a story about love or whatever, you might be more primed to figure out the mystery. And that's kind of one of the challenges, especially on 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 my end when I'm the veteran of like trying to lead you through the story without just saying. Like I was, you know, teasing a little bit in, in the second part mainly, I think. Talk about how like, oh, romance really is the true power here, but like, I wasn't really setting expectations for you, I was just teasing, because yeah. that's what I do. I mean, and um, that's
0: fine, that's what we're here to do. It's true, it's true. But you know what we're here to do now, Hurts? Tell us, We're Flex. here
1: to pick a new book. <gasps> now you get to do that this time. I do, what I will be got? the
0: veteran this time. I'm doing something a little weird this week.
1: What? This wasn't weird? Mm, this is
0: weirder. Okay, throw it at me. I have three books for you, well, three stories for you. Three stories. to do right. Three stories in three weeks. So next week, we will be covering House in the Mist by Anna Catherine Green. The edition of the publication we have contains House in the Mist, The Ruby in the Cauldron, and The Hermit of Blank Street.
1: Blank Street? Does that mean that it doesn't have a name? Or is that the name... That's the name of the street? That's
0: for you to discover. That's crazy. Next week, we'll just be covering Chapter 1 of The House in the Mist. But we'll roll on through those other stories in the following week. So make sure you keep an eye on our socials at Flex and Herds to know which stories we're covering as well as listening to the show
1: well i'm looking forward to try and solve not one not, not two but three stories indeed my goodness my work is cut out for me <laughs> see if i can beat you this time you scallion.
0: indeed thank you so much for joining us for the larouge case we are flex and herds this has been death
2: of the reader see you next time